If you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 is where we find ourselves in beginning this new series and looking at the importance of membership and the importance of the church. And if you'll find yourself in Colossians 1 and locate your outline for this morning, that will be our guide through God's Word. And I'll put those answers up on the screen as we move through. But the reality is you, um, we hear words or, or phrases like this all the time, that you don't have to be a Christian to go to church or, or going to church does not make you a Christian. Or going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to Taco Bell makes you a burrito, right? We've all heard phrases like that, and most of the time they are also excuses like that. And we've all heard these lines, but maybe some of us have even used these lines. But my prayer is that by the end of this sermon, or maybe it'll take by the end of this sermon series, or maybe it'll take longer than that. But at some point, my prayer is that all of us will have a greater understanding of the significance and the purpose and the necessity of the church, of church membership and of covenant. And the sheer overwhelming amount of things that we have to fill our calendars and make ourselves busy can often cause our commitments that we have in life to become less meaningful and more circumstantial. And here's what I mean by that. That is to say that we can develop the attitude of it's just not a good time for me right now when it comes to things that we are supposed to be committed to. We can have the, the attitude of, I would really wish I could be more involved, but I've just got too much, too much going on. Or I really wish I could, uh, I really feel like the best thing for me right now is to just sit in the pew and listen. And these attitudes and these things can become symptoms of the busy lives that we lead now. But this morning and throughout the rest of this series... I'm going to challenge us or really point out to how we are challenged in God's word to be Christians is to be a part of the church. To be a Christian is to be a part of the church and to be an active part of the local church. So allow me to give a brief explanation of how I've structured today's sermon. And my aim is to... Uh, point us from God's word and answer four important questions. Four important questions about the church. And you'll see those questions on the screens. You'll see them on your outlines. And these will give us a basis on which we will build in the ensuing Sundays. So these four questions, as you see them, are who is the church? Who is in charge of the church? What is the purpose of the church? And why covenant? So now I've done my best to answer these in a succinct and biblical manner because really each one of these could be a sermon in and of itself. But my prayer for our time this morning is that, that I would not get in the way of seeing what God's design is for his church and how this is reflected in our new church covenant and membership policies and the responsibility that it places on all of us to be members of one another. Because it's my goal moving forward that 
this, doesn't, this, this church covenant doesn't just become a document that we just hand to new members and say, read it, kind of understand it, sign it, and move on. And that the rest of us just forget or don't know about or don't think about on a regular basis. That it doesn't become just a meaningless piece of paper that's stuffed in somewhere in the constitution and bylaws but that it is something that we know and we understand and we live and we hold each other accountable to and something that we all attain to and uphold and so for that I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word and we're in Colossians chapter 1 Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 where we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. God, as we read your word, study your word, hear your word this morning, May it affect change in our lives. May it challenge any false preconceived notions we have about church membership and and the, the importance of it and the importance of being united in Christ. God, may it motivate us moving forward to live out lives that are authentically glorifying to you in all ways. May it affect change, not only in our individual hearts, but may it affect change in us as a church family to love one another well, to share your love well, and to make a difference where you have placed us as your church. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So... Of the many places we could have started this series in God's Word, dealing with the church and membership, and we could have started 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, or Acts, like the whole book, or you might be asking yourself, you know, why not Matthew 18? 
You might be asking yourself, why Colossians? And well, I hope you will see by the end of the sermon this morning. But for my fear of you missing it or for my poor job of pointing it out, let me go ahead and tell you why we're looking at the book of Colossians this morning. We're starting this series by looking at Colossians because of the incredibly concise and yet profound way in which Paul elevates Christ and points to Christ as the head of the church and the preeminence of all things and how this informs everything about how we view church, how we view what we do as part of the church, and how strong our commitment is to the church. And I'll pray you'll see this and that God would grant me the grace to point this out this morning. So the city of Colossae is located roughly 100 miles east of Ephesus in what is now modern-day Turkey. It was a Roman, it was in the Roman province of Asia and in the region of Phrygia. If you want to know more, look at, the, look at the map in the back of your Bible there. So there were a number of Jews in this city. However, it was predominantly a Gentile population. It was located near a, a major trade intersection for that region. And so this meant that there were... It, it housed Greeks and Romans and Jews and many other transient populations moving through for the trade. And so this conglomeration of people brings with it a conglomeration of religious views. And this is what led to some of the heresy and philosophies and other activities that tried to creep into the church or that confused the church that we see Paul discussing later on in this letter. But this is why Paul saw it necessary to write to the church at Colossae, to make sure that they fixed their eyes and their minds and their hearts on Christ, and that they did so together as his church. And the, the letter of Colossians is one of the, the prison epistles written by Paul, along with Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon. And while he was imprisoned, it's traditionally believed that he was imprisoned in Rome at the time that he wrote these letters. And we see those events in the, uh, of his imprisonment in Acts chapters 27 through 28. But while he's in prison, he writes these passionate letters to these churches, these conglomerations, these, these gatherings of believers that are scattered throughout these different places, encouraging them, challenging them to focus on Christ. And that's why I asked Alan, our praise team, to lead us in a theme song for this series, All Glory Be to Christ Our King. And that's why that is chosen as the theme song for this series, because as we'll see moving forward, that is the focus, the purpose, the meaning of the church. Christ and Him glorified in all the world, but specifically where each church, each individual local church has been placed. And so we'll see this as Paul's encouragement to this church was to remain centered and focused on Christ. And we'll see that from the very beginning of this letter. You look there again at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. All right, so we start with his name pretty 
inconspicuous at that point. I mean, that's, that's, that's to be assumed. All right. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this is the part of reading the New Testament that we often take for granted. It's these introductory portions to these letters. It's the, it's the greeting, as it's traditionally called. And we'll often, as we read these things, we'll breeze over them, right? We'll take them for granted. We'll just look over them. We'll kind of, yeah, 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 Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, will of God, all that stuff. We always thank God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll skip straight to the good stuff, right? That's how we typically look at these greetings. But I want to... To see why that's a mistake to make. Because in verse 1 alone, Paul sets the tone and focus for the rest of the entire letter. You look at verse 1 again. We start with his name. Right? Okay. Paul. But where does he then go after that? An apostle of Christ Jesus. So knowing the time and the conditions in which Paul is writing this letter... For the church to hear word from Paul, knowing that he's in prison, so that they hear his word, not hearing his voice, but hearing his words in this letter, is an incredible encouragement. But notice how he identifies himself and where he roots his proceeding message. An apostle... So he, he gives them his title and authority, but he doesn't lord it over them. Because where does he root his apostleship? Where does he root his authority? Of Christ Jesus. And so he's saying, listen to what I have to say. This is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So everything is rooted in this. And as you continue to read the book of Colossians, if you're familiar with it or you're not, you'll see this morning that this is what it's all about. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he's writing with the authority of an apostle, but that authority is not rooted in his own ability or achievements or him lording that authority over these people, but it's rooted in the one who gave him that authority, and that is Christ. And his message is rooted in God's will. God's will for him to lead and write the church, and God's will for the church. And now this brings up the next thing that we might be prone to overlook in the greetings of these New Testament letters, and that's, who is Paul writing to? So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So, you see that word there, saints. That word there for saints is hagios. Hagios is the Greek word there. And the, the root for that word is hagios, which is holy. And so this is literally the plural form. It means holy ones, those who are set apart, those who are made new, right? So he's writing to the church. Believers, those who have been regenerated and come to a knowledge of God's will, come to a knowledge of salvation in Christ and responded in obedience to that. And so he's literally writing to the holy ones. And he's writing to those who have been made new in Christ, who live, who are living a regenerated life in Christ. And now this brings us to our first question this morning. Who is the church? Who is 
the church. And according to what we see here in the first two verses that Paul expounds upon through the rest of the letter and what we see through the rest of Paul's letters as sometimes he'll use the saints and faithful brothers or he'll explicitly say the church at such and such. And we see this throughout the rest of his letters and that is that the church is those who are unified by God's design through new life in Christ. So those who have responded to the gospel and are living a regenerate lifestyle and who have responded to God's revealing himself to them. Just as Ronnie explained to us that it was God who moved and changed and shaped his heart. And so the church is those who are unified, so those who are together by God's design and through new life in Christ. You can also see this in the book that we left off in last week, Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can write it off to the note, but it will be on the screen. Acts chapter 2, we see the founding of the church, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. So last week, we looked at Peter's sermon there in Acts chapter 2 and we saw those who responded all that day were added about 3,000 souls and then we see verse 42 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers so they're devoting themselves so notice the plural language here and notice the language of commitment that is throughout These words here in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they're devoting themselves to what everybody's teaching about Christ and what he has done and who he was. And the fellowship, so that is their gathering together, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the Lord's Supper and worship and praying and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So this is not some loose affiliation of those 3,000 people. But all these people are together and share all things in common. Do you share all things in common with anybody nowadays? Right? It's pretty hard to find somebody that you share all things in common with. But yet, this is what is being spelled out for us here. That these people are together, enjoying, hearing the word preached, breaking bread together, fellowshipping, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they're caring for one another's needs. Serving one another, loving one another. Submitting themselves, verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together. And so they're hearing God's word preached some more and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's a few things that we need to notice about that last sentence too. That the Lord added to their number. So in order for the Lord to add to their number, they have to know who the number is, who already believes, who's already part of this fellowship, and they have to know who's coming in. So they have to be able to keep these records. They have to have knowledge of of everything that's going on here. So the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. 
You can go back to Colossians. Now, this is a distinction that's hard to make there in Acts chapter 2, but it becomes clear as we move throughout the New Testament. Because what we see in Acts 2 is simultaneously the first local church being formed and the global church. And so this is an important distinction to make as we read God's Word and we read instructions for the church and churches, right? Because the, this point is crucial to make that the global church is God's design for His people uh, that's the full encompassing nature. The global church is what we refer to. That's the big C, church. When we capitalize church, that's what we mean is the global church. And this is what we mean when we refer to other churches as our sister church. Or this is what we mean when we refer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That God has always been about creating and setting aside for himself a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so that's the big C, global church. So where does that leave local churches like us? Well, that's what I mean when we see there, we see simultaneously the first church being formed. Therefore, it's the first local church and it is the global church. So as we move throughout the rest of the New Testament and we see Paul go on his missionary journeys, he's not simply going to places and giving altar calls and then just leaving. He's going and spending time in these cities to establish leaders and elders and people who can then continue to communicate the gospel to others so that more can be added to their number. And so he's establishing a framework of, of how to live out our life in Christ. So the global church is God's design through new, is those unified, all of those unified by God's design through new life in Christ. But we see throughout the New Testament that the local church is God's design for the global church. And that's where churches like ours come in. That's where churches like the Colossians come in is that they are a local church. We are a local church. So we are a locally unified body of believers who have covenanted together, come together, committed together to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, to share together, to bring all of ourselves together, to hear the word preached and taught and to love one another. So the local church is God's design for the global church. And you'll notice that none of the questions which we're seeking to tackle this morning, if you looked ahead on your outline, is in the area of why church membership. And that was very intentional. I did not put that question on there because throughout the New Testament, from the formation of that original church in Acts 2 and onward, one's identity as a Christian automatically ties them to the church and to a church. There is no isolated Lone Ranger Christians. We have one instance of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then everything else is, if you are a Christian, you are part of the church and a church. So to be Christian is to be an active member of a local church, which identifies you as part of the larger body of Christ. And this is why membership matters. See, we have no address from Paul or Peter or John that instructs some believers to stay home and 
watch church on TV. I know they didn't have TVs, okay? But just bear with me. We have no instruction from them to just stay home and get the notes from somebody else later. Or to take time hopping around until they find the one that fits their desires, right? No, you hear the gospel, you respond to the gospel, and then you live out the gospel in the context of a local church. And therefore, as part of the church, the global church. So to be a Christian and not be a part of a church and the church in the New Testament would have been unthinkable. It's not something that, that happens. To be a Christian and not be a part of a church is not a thing in the New Testament. And so it's got to be something that is created by us, right? So where is Paul writing this letter again? He's writing this letter from a Roman prison. And why is he imprisoned? For preaching the gospel while planting churches. The movement of the gospel is a church planting movement. And unfortunately, for a long time, we've seen this become a gaping hole in missions and evangelism. We'll see a call to repeat a prayer with no call or challenge to be plugged into a local church. We've got to combat any sense of our faith being one that is lived out strictly individually because that's just not how it's designed by God to be. Is it an individual thing which happens inside of us, which he moves our hearts to salvation and reveals himself to us? Absolutely. But that individual reality is intended to be lived out in the context of the church community. And so Paul illustrates this plainly for the church in Corinth also. If you want to write off on a note there, 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul uses the illustration of the human body. And he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping and ministering in the various gifts, various kinds of tongues. So now this also brings us to and answers our next question because this is Paul's address to a different local church. Because you'll hear it sometimes, people will say, we're a New Testament church. The proper response to that is, which one? Because as we've seen throughout the New Testament, this is letters to multiple different churches who had different struggles, who had different, who looked different in their context. And so that's why Paul had to write different letters to different churches because of the different things going on in the different bodies. And so Paul says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, like I said, this brings us to our next question. So who is in charge of the church? Well, it's the body of who? Christ. It's abundantly clear in the New Testament that the local church is God's chosen and designed vehicle for glorifying himself among the nations. And almost all of the New Testament is made up of letters written to churches. These aren't letter, letters to individuals. These aren't letters, except for the individual letters, are to leaders of churches on how to lead the congregation. And so this reality of community and church and being a part of one another is inescapable in God's word. 
Almost all the New Testament is made up of letters written to churches, church leaders on how to lead church, how to worship well, how to be the church. And you don't get to that point by having some loose affiliation of people that are nominally associated with one another. They were meeting at the risk of their lives. Again, Paul's in prison for this very thing. And so when that's the case, when you're meeting at the risk of your life, you're not going to say, yeah, that's Bill. He's kind of one of us. He shows up every now and then. And, you know, he's here sometimes, but that's just how it is. In their situation, if that's how it is, that's probably somebody's looking to rat them out to the authorities. And so when you're meeting at the risk of your life, at the risk of your family's life, for the sake of Christ, you're going to make for darn sure that the person next to you clings as tightly to the cross of Christ as you do. And so as we keep reading, we see that this is exactly where Paul points the church at Colossae. As we're back in Colossians, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Again, the you there is plural because he's writing to a congregation of believers. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So as Paul goes on there. He goes on to explain how it is Epaphras who has brought this to them, our beloved servant. Because Paul never visited the Colossians. Paul spent three years, you can read in Acts 19, he spent three years in Ephesus planting the church of the Ephesians. Well, Ephesus, as we said at the beginning, is close in region to Colossae. And so in his time there, he's planting churches and he's also equipping them to send out church planters. Not to send out people who just raise up orphaned Christians that have accepted Christ but have no affiliation with Christ's body. But he's sending out church planter. So he, he sends out Epaphras from Ephesus to go to Colossae and establish the church of the Colossians. And you see that Epaphras listed there in verse 7. And you skip down to verse 15. As Paul continues to expound upon their faith and he expounds upon his prayer for them to continue to grow in faith. He said that there in verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So who is in charge of the church? Christ is the head of the church. It is Christ 
And it always has been. As This is what God was doing in Christ, was creating for himself a people, redeeming for himself a people. As Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that we see God doing in the Old Testament. As he sets aside the nation of Israel, now his nation is the church. And this is what Paul is explaining and reminding these believers of here as this was most likely also an early Christian creed. And we see this come out of frequently out of these prison epistles. And so this is why we don't have a pope. This is why we don't have a governing board. But instead, we as Baptists believe strongly as one of our distinctives in the autonomy of the local church. Because Christ is the head of the church. And we are individually members of it. So which means that while we are united in Christ as the global church, we are united as local churches led by pastors and elders at the local level. So it's not me who's in charge of this church. I am ultimately responsible and held accountable to God as Christ is the head of the church. This is what we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And he gave some, he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. I want to show you a picture real quick from Ephesus. That right there is an early Christian symbol. You've probably seen the modern adaptation of this known as the Jesus fish right the ichthus well that originally came from this I took this picture from the streets of Ephesus etched in the marble is this wagon wheel looking thing and this was an early Christian symbol that symbolized a early Christian creed or something they held to as something they all agreed on and so you can show the next picture of it, and it kind of spells it out. You can see one kind of there. It's, it's lightly etched in the marble street there. Uh, as you'd see these throughout Ephesus in front of homes every now and then. And you can see how it spells out in there, this I-X, and then there's theta, which is a circle with a line through it. And then what we would call a Y, but in Greek, it's a uios, and then the S or sigma right there, right? And that's what is spelled out within this wagon wheel looking thing. And the I stands for Jesus, Jesus. The X stands for Christos, Christ. The theta stands for God or theos, God. And then you have... The uyos, which stands for son, and then S, soter, savior. And so it spells out Jesus Christ, son of God, savior. And this was an early Christian creed or, or, or a motto, a thing that they lived by because it acknowledges the deity of Christ, it acknowledges the humanity of Christ, and it acknowledges what Christ came to do, is be our soter, our savior. And so we see these 
common things that the church would hold to. We see these throughout the prison epistles, these soliloquies like we have of the preeminence of Christ here in verses 15 through 20 of Colossians and, and listing out all that Christ is and has done. And so who's in charge of the church? Christ. Christ is the head of the church. As such, he has appointed those who will lead his church, who will lead his church and being united for his purposes, who will rally around the truths of his word, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior. And Christ has always been in charge of his church. And I want to make that very clear. Because though the Lord has brought me here and placed me as the shepherd of this flock here at Southside, I am accountable to Christ, which means this is not my church. I'm simply a steward of what Christ has placed me in care of. And so now that we know who the church is, who the sole head of the church is, then we must ask, what is the purpose then of the church? And the purpose of the church we see is that God is orchestrating all of history toward one goal. That's his glory. So therefore, our ultimate goal as his church is that same goal, to glorify Christ. The purpose of the church is to glorify Christ. You saw that there in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You see that as you continue reading, we stopped there in verse 18. Verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That is to bring together, bring back to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. He has brought you back. He has brought you together. And so this is what God does in the church. This is God's design for the church, that we were once alienated in our sin and now in realizing our sin and accepting the truth of the gospel, trusting in the work of Christ on the cross, he has brought us to himself and is bringing us to himself. He has united us together to worship and to learn, to read his word and to make his name known and glorify Christ. The church is the unified body of Christ under the authority of the risen Christ. God created the universe so that the glory of his grace might be perfectly displayed in the suffering of his son on the cross and his power displayed in his resurrection. And God created the church to unify around that truth and then declare that truth to the nations. We can't fulfill our purpose if we don't know our purpose. And our purpose is to be purposefully unified as his church, that we may reflect his glory to those around us and to the nations. See, to have a proper view of the church, we must have a proper view of eternity. What do I mean by that? To have a proper view of the church, we must have a proper view of eternity. Because if we view this life as all that there is, if we view this life as the ultimate reward in making the most of this life, 
We will claw, we will scratch, we will bite to build this place and we'll to build our lives into a club and into a reflection of our wants, our wishes, and our sinful flesh. But since this world is not the ultimate reward, since we live with eternity in mind and with Christ as our goal, and when we realize that, when we realize that these walls are not made to reflect us, when we realize that this place is not a club to shape it into our image, rather it's an embassy where we come together to identify ourselves with Christ and then go live as foreigners in a distant land that we may glorify Christ. That image there of, of an embassy comes from a, a small book that I'm reading called What is Church? It's one of the books of the, the Nine Marks uh, ministry that details different pieces of information that are, are necessary and essential for us to know as the church. And that's where we see that imagery come from. That the church is an embassy and that we are ambassadors. Now that comes from God's word. That comes from 1 Corinthians 5. But that we are ambassadors for Christ. Christ making his appeal to the world through us. And therefore, when we come together, we are coming together, identifying together as the people of God. And that's the church. And so the final question that you see there on your outline is, why covenant? And the answer to that one is simple. Is that we are a covenant people bought by the blood of Christ, as Paul outlined there for us, right there in Colossians, that we might walk united by his design and for his glory. We are a covenant people bought by the blood of Christ, that we might walk united by his design and for his glory. As I've said already, these prison epistles tend to have these points where we can identify early Christian creeds. Colossians 1, Philippians 2, Ephesians 2. But I also want to point out to the Old Testament because that's where we see the practice of covenant established for us. We saw this in our Genesis series, beginning in the garden, where God covenants with Adam and Eve. We see the covenant established for us as we go to the Noahic covenant. We go to the Abrahamic covenant. We go to Exodus, where we see the covenant at Sinai, which formulates the people of God. And then we have the Davidic covenant. All of these, of course, established by God. Because covenant places obligation on both parties. And this is the glorious mystery of the gospel that he has covenanted with us because God is the only one who can obligate God, right? The only one who can require something of God is God himself. And so he is the one who establishes covenant. And so from Sinai on, we see the people many times after that coming together to renew their covenant before the Lord repeating its terms, sanctifying themselves, admitting that they've broken the covenant. And one of these moments, one of my most famous moments in the Old Testament comes from 1 Kings. I'm going to go ahead and tell you to turn there. And this is where we'll wrap things up this morning. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 54. What we see here is the temple has been built so that people of God can worship God in a permanent place 
By, it's been built by Solomon. It's being dedicated. And Solomon is finishing the, the, the sanctifying, the, the opening of the temple with this prayer. 1 Kings 8, verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he had promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Verse 59. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Verse 61, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. You see, this was a, a, a seminal moment in the life of Israel as they no longer are worshiping in a tabernacle, a tent. Now they have a permanent place to worship the Lord. And Solomon finishes this, uh, uh, bringing the temple into use by, with these tremendous words. And then after this, he offers sacrifices according to the covenant rules and promises. And in, this, in these words, he calls on the covenants that God has promised the forefathers. And as we move through the prophets, we see, and actually we don't even have to move through the prophets. There's a few chapters later here, we see Solomon falling to temptation. And as we move through the prophets, we see the rebellion of the people exposed. We, and God declares that a new covenant is coming. Not one that will be inscribed on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our hearts. And when we see Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as we repeat and remind ourselves, when we take the Lord's Supper, he says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are a covenant people bought by the blood of Christ, that we might walk united by his design and for his glory. And for that reason, I have an excerpt here from our church covenant, which I, I want to read to us uh, to close out this time this morning. So this is an excerpt. This is the introduction to our church covenant. So I want, I want us to see... In these next few weeks, we'll, I'll do this. I'll take out excerpts because I want us to know what we're covenanting together and what is the foundation and the basis of this covenant. And so this is the, the introduction to our new church covenant. By God's providence and grace, having been brought to repentance, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those of us who have been renewed, who know Jesus and surrendered ourselves to him. The next line there for me. And upon our profession of faith, 
having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so having submitted to scriptural baptism, in complete reliance upon his gracious care, we do affirm our covenant with one another with great sincerity and joy. This is what we are committing to, to uphold our beliefs, to uphold our values, to hold one another accountable, to live out what we see in the founding of the first church there in Acts 2, to live out what we see Paul challenging the rest of the New Testament churches with, to be united, to humble ourselves, to bear one another's burdens, and to be together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our unity that has been hard fought the battle that has been won by you in that regard. And we pray that as we continue to look at how your word challenges us and, and reveals to us not only the necessity, but the requirement and the assumption of church membership that you have designed your church. And so let us not think that we can live outside of your design. But God, instead challenge us and humble us to submit to your design, to covenant together, to, to uphold that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Savior, and to walk together, united for your glory. And we know that that will be for our good, that you might be preeminent in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.